Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Tim Urban. Tim is a writer and illustrator and co-founder of Wait But Why, which is a fascinating blog. It has over 600,000 subscribers and has covered a wide range of topics, from artificial intelligence to social anxiety to humans becoming a multiplanetary species. Tim also had a TED Talk, which I believe was the first TED video to reach over 10 million views in its first year and it now ranks in the top 10 of most-watched TED Talks. And in this conversation, Tim and I cover his new book, which is What's Our Problem? A Self-Help Book for Societies. We discuss Tim's unusual career, the finitude of life, existential risk, exponential technological change, political tribalism, the corruption of the media, how we think versus what we think, the breakdown of trust in institutions, the firing of James Bennett at the New York Times, the role of social media in creating digital mobs, the mechanics of cancellation, election integrity, and other topics. And I bring you Tim Urban. I am here with Tim Urban. Tim, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, um, you are a, an extraordinarily interesting person. I don't know if you think of yourself that way, but either for those who just have the evidence of your um, blog and uh, your new book, you really have a unique voice. I, I, will, I will have introduced you properly in my, um, my housekeeping, but how do you describe what you do and how you do it and, and the kinds of topics you focus on? Yeah, I, I would say I'm kind of, um, I, you know, uh, we're all in really interesting conversations at different times, and we're all sometimes going really interesting internet rabbit hole spirals and learn something fascinating. We get addicted to some new topic, and we all also are always observing things. And we have, you know, everyone has kind of, without maybe even consciously realizing it, you know, little pet theories on the world, on what makes a marriage work, on why people procrastinate, on why, you know, what government should be like, and whatever. And so, what I do is I just take all those things, and when, I, when something's particularly interesting, you know, an observation or something I learned or some conversation I had, I'll, I, I'll take on the challenge to try to package that. So what's, you know, if that, if that rabbit hole was seven hours of reading and learning, okay, how can I package it in a way where someone can read something in 20 minutes and basically get the most important stuff there. And so it's, mm. it's yeah, so then I'll, I'll create like a package. Usually it's a blog post, in this case, more recently, a, a much longer book. But yeah, and then I just take, you know, pride in kind of, it, it fits well with a kind of my perfectionist sensibilities to like be able to sit there in the incubator and work on it and work on it and work on it. And then finally, when it's ready, to ship it out into the world. What did you think you were going to do when you were in college? Did you have a clear sense of where you were hoping to go? I, I was, it's hard, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to really remember. I, I like, I was pretty sure I, I knew I didn't want like a normal job. I just didn't like school. I didn't like having to be somewhere at a certain time and I, I didn't like homework and whatever. And so I thought, um, you know, something creative, something in music, something in writing was always very interesting to me, you know, maybe something in business. Um, and I was doing all of those things in my twenties for a while, kind of all of them, not that well, because I was doing everything, you know, to, trying to do too many things. 
it's hard to, you know, you pick something, you're already, and it's scary because you're, you're kind of unpicking the other things. And, mm. um, and so uh, it took me till I was like, you know, 31 to p- basically pick something to go full time with. And I had been blogging on the side for about seven years at that point, just very casual. But I, I, but I, you know, it added up. I wrote 300 little blog posts on that site, which kind of helped me, I think, get confidence in like a certain writer voice and realize that this, this could be fun because writing to me was always the worst thing ever because I associate it with school and papers. And so hmm. blogging, you know, f- f- as a side activity, I was like, oh, no, no, this is, this is a totally different kind of thing. And um, yeah, 31 decided, you know, full time with with one of the things. <laughs> Full-time with, with the blog, Wait But Why? Yeah, so I, I, the, the Wait But Why hadn't started yet. Um, mm. I actually was um, business partners with my friend Andrew and we're running this business and then I'm on the side doing this musical with my friend Ryan and then I'm solo blogging. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I just remember talking to Andrew in the summer of 2012 and being like, I'm going crazy here. I need to pick something full-time. And uh, yeah, so you know, we just decided, you know, why, why don't I go off and uh, go full-time with blogging and see, ha- see what happens. And I didn't know what that meant. You know, was, it, what, was I going to start a media site and hire a bunch of writers? I mean, this was a different time on the internet, 2012, 2013. It was, there were lots of listicles. You know, the BuzzFeed had just blown up. And it was, um, it, the, I felt like there was a shortage of just like really good, fun, interesting articles. And, and so the idea was start that. And mm. it's, I, I can start it as the only employee writing and maybe we'll hire people. And ended up turning into um, just, you know, the, the blog caught on really quickly, and which was awesome. Um, I'm, you know, it's like I, I don't know whether I would have stuck with it for that long if it hadn't. But once it did catch on, I was like, all right, okay, this is my thing. I'm gonna like go full, full steam into this, and um, just got, you know, I had endless energy for that. It was like such a fun, exciting new thing to be able to just put all my energy into. Yeah, so so wait, but why was new? You know, I basically mm-hmm. um in the it was the it was like a December of 2012. I went to Easter Island alone for a month hmm. and was basically because I was procrastinating on this new idea and I wasn't actually starting it. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to Easter Island for 30 days and I'm going to come back with a, a blog name, a blog design. I'm going to have set it up on, you know, WordPress. I'm going to have written the first like five posts, you know, and, and that's, so that's what I did. And, um, that, that, that was kind of the birth of Wait But Why. Hmm. Well, it's hard to, uh, capture what is so strikingly unique about it until uh, maybe I just recommend people seek it out online in addition to uh, getting the new book we're going to talk about. But I mean, one thing that jumps out is that you have a remarkable talent for visually representing information and in particular in a way that makes it emotionally arresting. I mean, the, the, the thing that is truly burned into my brain from one of your blog posts is the poster you made of the, uh, the 90-year lifespan doled out in weeks where each line is a, a year. So each line has got you know, 52 uh, squares on it, or circles. I can't remember what you actually graphically represented there. But ju- you can just see, you, know, you literally see, can put your finger on the week that is currently elapsing in your life, whatever your age, presumably uh, you're, young, you're younger than 90. And then you see where you are in relation to you know, what is in, in actuarial terms for virtually anyone, a, a very generous you know, lifespan that you really can't safely assume you're, you're, you're going to enjoy uh, or certainly enjoy in good health. So it's such a strong way of getting across the, the knowledge and the wisdom that everyone knows in the abstract, but it, it just, you, you manage to make it concrete. And uh, I mean, there are many other examples of this kind of thing. 
uh, the other one that jumps to mind, which it wasn't so much a a visual representation, although perhaps you did actually draw it too. But you at one point did the math and calculated that. <laughs> forgive me if I, I get the the actual numbers wrong here, but it's something like you know ninety seven percent of your time with your parents is over by the time you're 18 or something. I mean, viewed from the side of of being the the child, it lands one way, but viewed from the side of being a parent, it's quite an arresting realization that as much as you may visit after you first leave home over the course of even a very long life, it just doesn't add up to that much time compared to the time of living in the same house together year after year until 18 or so. Yeah, you like you have, you know, I spent like most people 300 plus days, 350 probably plus days with my parents a year from the age of, you know, being birth to 18, you know, it's it's and then yeah, I just started doing the math. I mean, if you live in some people live in the same city as their parents and they see their parents a lot, multiple days a week. Okay, that's great. And 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 that that's a different story, but I think a lot of us, you know, we see our parents 10, 20 days a year, something like that. And hmm. if you think about, you know, again, if you're lucky when you graduate college, you know, you have, a, I don't know, three, four or five decades left of time when you and your parents are both around. And if you add up that 10 to 20 days a year, I mean, it's, it, you realize it's, a, it's like around a year total of actual days. Um, and so, you know, it's like you graduate high school and you're 18 and it's like, oh, you actually, you know, you feel like you, you know, you're in year 18 of, mm-hmm. you know, 60 of, parent kid time and it's actually no you're in year 18 of 19 Mm. and you can and and the reason that i mean i find that it's incredibly sad but it's also true and so it's like what we don't want to avoid sad thoughts and then make worse decisions because of it and so one of the things that you can the reason i like this one is because it's like if you get sad now about it you can do something about it you can double that time by doubling the amount of days you visit your parents. And also you can improve the time you do hang out with them by realizing like, this is not, this is not like this endless thing that this, you know, it's, it's, is actually finite and precious. And when you start treating it like that, then you make better decisions and you're less sad later than you would be. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so your, your new book is very much in the spirit of your blog. I mean, in addition to just Visually representing things well, you you have a, a very funny cartooning style, which is uh, one of the pleasures that will be familiar to anyone who has who has looked at your blog. But the new book is "What's Our Problem?" a self help book for societies. And again, it's it's very much in the spirit of "Wait, but why?" But you, know, you I can't remember how you got tangled up in this project. Maybe my memory is tangled with respect to what you were working on. But I remember at one point you put the blog on hold to work on a book and or to work on some very long blog posts. And this book was taking a very long time. But this book took you <laughs> six years to write. What, give me the story of this, the painful birth of this book. Yeah, you, you know well, because I feel like I, every time I've seen you, I, I just come back and I say, you know. I'm You're complaining about it. something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And I actually partially blame you for this because mm-hmm. one of the very first, I, I, I try to always think back, you know, what? Because I didn't like write, I don't want to write about politics. I actually... You know, Dave Roberts at Vox wrote an article about, you know, praising Wait But Why and saying that, you know, my articles on SpaceX and Tesla were these meaty, great articles. So, he, you know, he's very nice, but then he basically turned it into one point of criticism, which is that I, like so many, you know, tech bro type people who like to think about tech and whatever, Silicon Valley types, they don't, they're not, they, they have this attitude that like, 
that politics is so annoying and they just want to check out. And that's actually kind of a lame cop out. And, you know, people like Tim should actually dig in. And I remember reading that and thinking, no, thanks. Like, I just, why would I want to write about something where you're going to have it read so uncharitably and you're going to be, it's going to be straw manned. And it's also just kind of, a, you know, it's kind of, a, I don't know. It's just, it's not the kind of concrete topic I like to get into. It's, it's hazy. It's, it's changing every year. So I wasn't even really into this topic. And, and then I remember watching your, it's the legendary clip now of you on Bill Maher with Ben Affleck. And I remember it was one of these first moments when I had a, th- it was, it was a kind of like broke my head a little because I was like, okay, you know, I had always been, you know, true blue, like a lot of people who grew up in a progressive suburb and who go to a progressive college and then live in LA like I did and then move to New York like I did. And uh, like a lot of people in 2012, 2013, 2014, there were a lot of people who were just, you know, very clearly the, the blue team is the good team. And, and that's obvious. And maybe there's, there's faults there. And maybe not everything the red team does bad, but basically it's just clearly blue good, red bad. And watching that clip, I was like, I very, very much want to be like Sam Harris in this clip, not like Ben Affleck. Like, I, I it, you know, not, not even because of the specific topic, but because there was like this, you know, kind of independent, fearless, reasoned opinion. And then there was this like, you know, knee-jerk dogmatic response of someone who wasn't even listening and was, and I, and I, it was kind of a, it was like one of those moments when you subconsciously absorb probably a lot of that happening. And mm-hmm. then there's one final straw that kind of makes it all crash down into your, you know, bubble up into your actual consciousness. And so, you know, it was like, kind of a bunch of these things had been subtly bothering me. And I think that was one of these moments. And, you know, another one was the next year when there was this fiasco at Yale about Halloween costumes. And, mm-hmm. you know, Greg Lukianoff takes this video of Nick Christakis getting abused in the, in the you know, the, the quad by a bunch of students. And, and again, I was like, okay, th- this is, the, you know, it, it, it just, once there's that crack in some kind of very basic conviction, like blue, good, red, bad, and there's just some like crack that like, then it's, it can quickly start to fester and it can like, and so for, for me, that was one element here. There was just like this, this interesting fact that I felt like things were more complicated than I thought they were and things were changing and I, I wanted to, and that became much more of an interesting blog post than writing about like, here's why, you know, here's what I think about these 10 political issues. And, and then, then there was a whole other thing going on, which is that I write about stuff like, AI and brain machine interfaces and I, you know, genetic engineering and the, the, you know, all these amazing technologies that are coming in the future and things that are, you know, that give us immense power as a species, you know, for better or worse, because, you know, tech, technology, you know, is a double-edged sword. And so going into this future where tech is exploding, you know, to me, that doesn't say that that's not a good or a bad thing. It's, it just says the stakes are getting higher and higher and higher. Like the, the good is going to be even better in the next century than it ever has been before. And the bad could be even worse. And with that in one side of my mind, and then on the other side, I'm looking at society and it's like at the time when the stakes are getting high, you want us to be our most grown up wise selves. And I looked out and I see a society that seems to be going in the complete opposite direction. Mm. It just seems to be growing, you know, if society is an organism, that organism is like, you know, it's like Benjamin Buttoning. It's like, it's getting younger and less wise. And all those ominous quotes about forgetting history. I mean, it's like, this seems to be what we're doing. And 
it felt like suddenly like the all, all these other topics that I write about, it's like they were secondary to this topic because it's like if it, I, I can't like get excited about the future right now if I think we're going to blow it and we're not going to even be able to get to a good future or we're going to, you know, we have such an opportunity for what would seem like a utopia to people living today to, to actually get to a world like that. And it felt like we were, we were, we were like, you know, we're not doing the things we need to do to get there, going in the wrong direction. So it's like a combo of those things. And, and as a blogger, again, back to the first topic, as a blogger, I, I realized I'm like, I, I write about anything, right? I wrote about religion, you know, once. And my, my dad was like, you're going to, this is the end of, of, of Wait But Why. You know, you, <laughs> you can't write about religion. And I said, I don't think that's true. And I had the right instinct in that, you know, it, it, nothing bad happened. And I've written, I've written about a lot of things that I thought, you know, that, that people would say not to write about. And I just, I just felt very unafraid. But with this topic, I, I felt like this is going to be a nightmare. And I felt this, this incredible external pressure to not write it. And that was not coming from, you know, the people who I thought of as the political bad guys to write because they had no power over me. I was really scared of kind of the political left. So again, this is what's going on there. Like what these are supposed to be my people. So what's going on? So the, the, it's kind of those things got me beginning thinking I'm writing a blog post about this. I'm going to write a blog post about about this concept that we're going in the wrong direction and that this doesn't seem to be like a simple, you know, right wing is bad problem. It seems like it's a bigger, deeper problem going on. And what often happens is I'll try, I'll think I'm writing a 3,000 word blog post and I'll write a 7,000 word blog post, or I'll think I'm writing an eight and I'll write a, a 30. This happened a few times. Mm. In this case, it just, it just got to, it just became a caricature of myself. It just kept growing and it got bigger and bigger and I, I needed to take on it. it my Everything seemed relevant to it. You know, everything I would read about, every current event story needed to come in, and this topic just kind of subsumed me. Yeah, and you not only have to write about these things, you have to draw hundreds <laughs> of illustrations. So, yeah. you know, it's... Uh, for, for, for someone who's not a very natural artist, so I'm doing, my, my other hand is constantly on the command Z, right. where I'm just, you know, try to draw the head circle undo, head circle undo. I'll do it 40 times until it looks right. Well, but you, you, you have made a virtue of your limitations as an artist. I mean, your, your style is comedic based on how basic it is, and it's, uh, it's, it works perfectly. All right, so let's start where you, more or less where you start in the book, because I, I, I notice whenever I speak as though this moment in history was um, uniquely important compared to previous moments in, in history, my own bullshit detector begins to go off. But then I notice that I override it because I, I mean I do think just you know generically it's it seems ridiculous for any present generation to think that it really is it occupies some sort of privileged and you know uniquely perilous moment in the career of the species where like you know everything that that is you know turned up to eleven with respect to their daily concerns really is as important as it seems. It just seems like the perpetual vanity of the present to think that, and yet I can't quite convince myself that that's true in the current environment. The way technology is showing on a you know practically an hourly basis now that it has exponential implications for us. So I mean, perhaps you you know we can just get a sort of sanity check on on this point. I mean, it, it just seems that and. You know, many of the things you've you've listed contribute to this picture for me. I mean, when you talk about technologies like genetic engineering or AI, and you stack those on top of these longstanding concerns around things like nuclear proliferation or the ongoing threat of nuclear war, you know, 
inadvertent or otherwise. It just seems like the prospect of our ruining things is always increasing, and it's getting easier and easier for one person or a small number of people deranged by mental illness or some terrible ideology to ruin everything for millions and even billions. I mean, they just what we have just lived through with COVID and the prospect that this could have been a lab leak, whether or not it was in some sense is immaterial, but it, it just re- reminds us of, of the fact that we are virtually on the cusp of democratizing the type of technology that would allow one person or 10 to consciously decide to release some heinous pathogen on all of humanity. Uh, and we were never there before. So you know, perhaps you can just reflect on how you view this, this moment in history. And I mean, when you, when you hold it up against all previous moments, I mean, we, you know, for the last 200 years or so, this hasn't been true. But when you go back many thousands, as you point out at the beginning of your book, I mean, hu- human history was just a theater of utter boredom, right? I mean, basically nothing changed for generation after generation. And now we've hit some kind of asymptote with respect to cultural and technological change. I don't know. Am I, uh, am I just getting yeah, paranoid? I, no, I mean, it, there, there's a couple things going on. So there is the tendency to think that your time is the end of days. Your time is this is the, the, the chosen time, you know, that whatever. I mean, I'm sure that people throughout history have always felt that way. And I see a lot of that in the way that I think is kind of classic bullshit today. You know, just just the, 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 you know, the media narratives and the people on Twitter talking about, you know, just, just catastrophizing and, and not having any perspective. So there's a lack of perspective that, that makes, can make you feel more special than you are about, you know, they make your time feel more special. There's also, um, but if you zoom out on even, you know, if you actually do zoom out and get that perspective, I think you at, ironically, in this case, do land in the same place, not necessarily for the same reasons. The visual I use, and just kind of the, the that I think is a way to emphasize this point, and, and I think in, in a way that's pretty undeniable, is that if, if humanity, and just say we go, you know, some people say it's 200,000 years or 300,000, it's a hazy line. Let's say 250, 250,000 years, and so let's make a thousand page book with each page is 250 years. Like you said, the first 950 pages of the thousand page book, almost nothing happens. It's just hunter gatherers, and there's some migrations. And maybe there's some te- technology developments every, you know, 100 pages with a better arrowhead and, you know, things like this. But almost nothing happens. And then the last 50 pages, all of civilization is in the last 50 pages, which, of course, also just reminds you that we are primates programmed for the first 950 pages. Mm-hmm. Our brains have not had time to adjust yet to the last, you know, civilization happening in the, basically the epilogue of the book. Um, it's kind of like epilogue. Civilization is kind of the last chapter. Um, and an AD, you know, is, eight, is, is, is page 992. So, but the, but the, the crazier thing about it is if you compare the very last page, so page 1000, which goes from like the early 1770s to today, to all the pages before it, it's just an anomaly in every way it can possibly be. I mean, every single part of our current crazy modern world, electricity, all the ways we, you know, use, have transportation, the incredible communication abilities we have, you know, space travel, air travel, you know, car travel. I mean, and then, you know, the f- fossil fuels era, modern liberal democracies. Every single, I, every single thing I just said is an entire, entirely a page 1000 phenomenon. And 
So there's no way you can zoom out on that and say, well, you know, people, everyone always thinks that about their time. And it, it's just, if, if, if you're an alien reading this book, hmm. you, are, you are riveted suddenly. On page 1,000, you're saying, oh, okay, you know, shit's going down. What's going to happen now to this species? We're about to find out. Like, what's, where, this is the climax. So I don't think it is uh, naive to say that we're in some kind of, you know, the climax of the story, or at least one of the climaxes of the story. And then I think even within page 1000, I think things are moving really quickly now. The environmental changes that have happened to, you know, like the U.S., you have, you know, you have tribal media from the broadcast era, you know, turning into kind of the narrowcast tribal era, and you have social media just drops into the world. And that's a massive environmental change. And you've got AI right now is advancing so quickly. And, and it's just, I just, um, you know, we're not, our society, it can be very strong. But when things start moving too quickly, I think you can, the society can lose its grip. And when that's a, that should scare everyone. I mean, we, we're like, you know, when you grow up in this artificial environment, like a modern liberal democracy, you think this is just the way things are. But it's not. This is an artificial, very new artificial invention that gives us all an incredible life that people before us never got to have. And that artificial invention is not, is not you know, there, there's not um, a totalitarian dictator that's enforcing it. It is a set of laws and rules that are basically only as good as the people who are willing to like uphold them. And then, then there's a bunch of norms and customs and there's a common, you know, shared set of values. And that's the other half of the puzzle. And if you, if either of those goes away, then the, the thing stops working. And so when things are moving really quickly, it can get chaotic. People start thinking desperate times call for desperate measures. And desperate measures is often, you know, a euphemism for breaking those norms that, that, that have held things together for a long time. And, and so, yeah, I know, I, I, think it's, I think people should be very concerned. I think there's also a reason for optimism and hope. But I think that anyone who's cocky, who's, who's kind of snickering at anyone who is feeling this way and saying, you know, it's, Oh, things have always, you know, people have always thought, you know, it'll be fine. The U.S. is, is robust. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> this is a lot of unprecedented things happening. Yeah, it's interesting to consider those points of no return or apparent no return where things changed based on the introduction of new technology or a, a new business model, a new set of incentives that locked everything in. And I, I was just reflecting the other day, I was talking to my oldest daughter about uh, the deep past, the uh, the 1990s or so. <laughs> and uh, I realized, I, I thought about this at the time, but I hadn't thought about it for many years, that the birth of CNN and the, the introduction of the 24-hour news channel, that was a very significant change where we, suddenly they had, they had to fill the air, right? And they, they were incentivized to basically just train the eye of the media on on each new catastrophe or pseudo-catastrophe, and we just began advertising to ourselves the worst of what could be found on planet Earth in, in any given 24-hour cycle, or we would expand the, the significance of anything, just drawing it out for extracting as many possible hours from it. And it just became this, you know, whether it was the, the OJ trial or, or anything else, it just, there was this turn toward, and, and, the, and the, the necessity of it all, of knowing everything as it happened, right? The, the, you know, the, to, it is so anachronistic to think that, uh, of the possibility of having a weekly news magazine where you would wait a week 
you know, like in Newsweek or Time, where you would wait a week to find out what had, what had happened in world events. Anyway, that, that seemed like a, a crucial pre-internet change. And then the internet, uh, with its ad-based business model, basically locked in a certain kind of incentives. And now we're living, in many respects, with the implications of a, a machine we've built that is just designed to game people's attention based on outrage and partisan division. And it's just, I mean, for apart from the fact that you know, so many people see this and, and want to resist, the incentives are just so strong for clickbait of a very specific type. And, you know, the, the social media layer here is perhaps the worst offender. I'd love to get your take on how you view media and social media at this moment and the prospects of our course correcting. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, one of my COVID activities turned out to be watching The Real Housewives of Atlanta, and <laughs> I didn't plan on that. This is my, you know, I, I, my this wife goes this, in phases. This is your confession. Yeah, it's not, it's not something I'm proud of. It's um, my wife goes in phases, and she, you know, she's, she's had, you know, she has the true crime phase, and she'll have other phases. Uh-huh. Um, she, so she also had a Real Housewives phase, and I thought it was this inane background thing. And you know, at some point I'm sitting there and I, and I just find myself looking over and I start to, and then, you know, three episodes later, I'm like, wait, 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 sorry, what happened with Phaedra's, you know, new company? And mm-hmm. so now I'm, I'm watching it. And, and it got me thinking because, so reality is boring. It's mostly boring, but a reality show is always interesting, right? It's entertainment. How do you turn boring reality into uh, interesting entertainment is you edit out all the boring stuff and you and you 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 hype up the conflict and the drama and it's just an endless string of conflict and drama which gets in our ancient our very ancient brains love that you know i mean that's where gossip is one of the earliest kind of you know human ways to the, for you know humans to bond and form bonds together in, in a tribe and you know in group out group bashing and all of this so it's getting at a very it's basically you know it's it's tickling a very ancient thing in us. And I, and, and, and I, to me, it's not that different than, than junk food, right? It's like it, it, when I, if, if you give me a, a candy bar, one part of my brain is like, this is not good for you. This is not, this doesn't make sense to eat for any reason. Let's be sparing with it, maybe a little treat, but not, but another, the dumb part of my brain wants to devour it and eat it another one and keep going because are they in the, again, there's this, this not first 950 pages of the book, it was always a good idea to eat a really dense, sweet thing if you could get your hands on it because calories are hard to come by and you don't know when you're going to come across any kind of calories again, so just binge. So we kind of misfire and now we want to eat the candy bar. And I think this is the same thing that, that, that makes us really like watching um, The Real Housewives. So this got me thinking about our media. And politics is extremely boring. You know, I asked my grandmother, when you were, you know, 20, because all the 20 year olds today, you know, they're super political, right? Mm. And I said, we, you know, were you super into like the Hoover, um, you know, FDR election? And, she's, and, and she said, no, we thought politics was boring. And I, and I, th- you know, I thought it's so weird today that kids don't think that because politics is so boring. And again, it started to hit me that politics like reality is boring. And just like you can turn reality interesting by editing it into a, a kind of a, a fictional narrative of, of endless conflict and drama, you can do the same exact thing with politics. So you have now the real politicians of Washington, D.C., which is basically this trashy reality show that huge part, portions of America are addicted to. And 
there are good guys and bad guys. There are heroes and villains. There's always, there's, there's main characters. You know, you know, these, again, this 20-year-old or a lot of 50-year-olds who say they're super into politics, they're passionate about it. Actually, what they, you know, it, it, ask them to name the Congress people in their state. They probably mm-hmm. can't. How mm-hmm. about their state representatives? How about any bills that have been passed in the last month? They're not actually interested in politics. They're addicted to a trashy reality show called The Real Politicians of Washington. And it's the same kind of, it's, it's political junk food. So it's, again, it's, it's like the candy bar. It's Mars Inc. makes a ton of money selling to our primitive minds. And CNN and MSNBC and Fox News also make a ton of money selling junk food to our primitive minds. And it, it both preys on and enhances this rising phenomenon of political tribalism, political bigotry. So it's, you know, you know what you said about how, you know, it, it, yeah, 24 hours, you had to fill it with something. But I think that if you watched, if you looked at how this evolved, they started to, you know, accept, realize the fact these, these brands, that th- they were entertainment channels. And they had a, they had a mm-hmm. bunch of people hooked on, their, on this show. And so they need main characters. You know, I, I talked to a congressman named Derek Kilmer recently, who's super nuanced and measured and he's not bombastic and no one's heard of him, right? But you've heard of, you know, Matt Gates and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and AOC and because these are the main characters. They're, they're, they've been cast on the show. Derek Kilmer is not cast on the show. Mm. And so that's a, that's a massive environmental shift, which is going to have massive effects on our psyche, on our behavior and how people act. Yeah, well, let's talk about the structures of thought here. And I mean, this really cuts against both extremes of the political spectrum. I mean, this is the your kind of the lens through which you criticize political extremism and, and ideological capture in your book. Uh, and, and so one of these structures you introduce is the concept of the latter versus the the idea spectrum. This is a, a distinguishing, you know, how one thinks from what one thinks. Perhaps you can introduce that here. Right. So we, you know, if, our conversations and then, our, and then in turn, our thoughts are going to be constrained by kind of the language we have. When you have a word for something, then it becomes a concept in people's minds and then we can discuss it and then develop new nuanced ideas around that word. But if you don't have the word in the first place, you often just don't even think about it. And I think our political discussions are massively constrained by this super simplistic, one-dimensional, horizontal axis that goes from the far left to the moderate left, the center, the moderate right, the far right, whatever. And I, I hear people saying stuff like, you know, at least people that I think feel the way I do, they say things like, you know, we need more, you know, we, we, we need more centrists. And then you have a lot of people who hate centrists, right? And that a lot of people, and it seems like it's this battle between the people who like the center and the people who want the far ends. And to me, that's just, that's a very like unnuanced conversation. Because first of all, I know lots of centrists that are pretty dogmatic about their centrism and they're not actually thinking that hard and they're kind of knee-jerk taking a centrist position on things. And I also know people who are, I would you know, consider pretty far right or, or pretty radical left who are extremely thoughtful and like to argue and might change their mind. So there's something wrong with this. So I, I basically said, let's just make it a square. Let's, let's build a vertical axis here and I call it the ladder. And now we can have like the upper left and the upper right and the lower center and the upper center. And it just, it just gives us the second dimension where at the bottom, you know, on the low rungs of the ladder, when it comes to, it can, you can apply this ladder to how you think in general, you know, at the top, you're concerned with truth and we are independent, you're independent thinking and you're looking for truth and you don't identify with your ideas and you're fine to change your mind. And you like to argue because when you're, when all you're concerned about is truth, 
uh, and you're not identifying with your ideas, I'll, you know, I consider argument like it's like uh, you're throwing your idea into the boxing ring. Let someone else box against it and see how it does. If you're proud of your idea and you think it's good, you're, you love to have someone go at it. Let's see. Yeah, let's, I, I think I have a champion heavyweight boxer here. Let's see what you got. And if you don't think you have a good idea, it's like, cool, like, kick my idea. Let some parts break off. Show me where it's weak. I can get smarter. I can get better. So that's this one kind of general way of thinking. And when you go down the rungs, this, I think the same part of your brain that I've been referencing that I call the primitive mind, that this, this, this kind of unconscious software in our brain that thinks it's living in 50,000 BC that likes to eat candy bars and that is addicted to reality TV, that part of the brain gets involved. And that part of the brain does not care about truth. It identifies with its ideas, the, the ones that it holds sacred. And that means that when you, that it, it becomes like uh, preserving your body in, to preserve those ideas. It becomes this, this you're, you're, that, you're, that part of your brain can get very confused. And by the way, you, you, you're, you've done one of the studies that I like to reference here, where you know, the default, default mode network of your brain, that this part of your brain that is associated with internal reflection and identity actually it lights up in fMRIs when certain political beliefs are challenged as opposed to when non kind of sacred topics are challenged. Uh, I think it's, mm. yeah, yeah, I think it's one of the most. Yeah, you're referencing a, a paper I did with uh, Jonas Kaplan. And um, yeah, we compared political beliefs to just ordinary beliefs that, that wouldn't, wouldn't invoke a person's self-identity, presumably like beliefs about, you know, what city they happen to be in or you know, just, just basic facts. And um, yeah, we, yeah, we also found that when you challenge people's political beliefs, you're getting more amygdala and, and insular activation, and which you would expect. And um, yeah, that kind of activation was correlated with uh, a resistance to belief change. Because what we, what we did in these experiments, we presented people with, with evidence against their beliefs, whatever they are. And, and, and basically, there were increments of trying to argue them out of any specific belief, whether you know, one was like, you know, secondhand smoke causes cancer, or, and in this case, created spurious evidence that uh, argued them out of that widely held belief. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, on some level, not a surprise, but it is, it's interesting I mean, to see so, the, so the brain report it's, it's, that. And, 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 and it's just so inf interesting that literally a different part of your brain and a very, a very old part of your brain, right, that like kind of limbic system that is not really part of your consciousness, gets involved, actually gets involved in, when it comes to, and I'm sure this would go for a sacred, you know, a very religious person's religious beliefs, and I'm sure it would go for, for some people, it's about their nutrition uh, opinions or mm -hmm. their way of about they raise their kids. You see a whole different kind of part of their mind takes over. So basically, when I'm talking about that high-rung thinking, where again, it's, this is the ideal thinking, right? And it's hard to do, where you just, you're not attached to your ideas. You just care about truth. You love to argue you're, or you're okay to argue and you like hearing people that disagree with you and all of that. As soon as this primitive mind enters the scene, that becomes much harder to do. It affects your motivation. So your motivation at the top is just truth. Why wouldn't it be? That's just rational. I just want to, I, want, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be delusional. But when this other part of your brain enters, it starts to, ha it starts to root for certain ideas to be correct. It starts to, it's, it starts to feel an existential crisis it, when introduced to strong evidence against a sacred belief. It must protect the belief like you protect your body. And so for a while, in the middle of this ladder, we're conflicted. You know, we, we're, we are going for the truth, and we, we do care about the scientific method, but we're really rooting for one idea, and we have a lot of confirmation bias. You know, just kind of this invisible hand of this primitive mind that's pushing your 
investigation towards confirming, towards ending at the right conclusion. And so we'll do things like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll instead of being skeptical of things that seem untrustworthy or s- things that seem inaccurate, we'll start to become skeptical of things that disagree with us. And we'll become gullible towards things that seem to confirm our beliefs, even if that evidence doesn't seem particularly accurate. And then, um, and so we're conflicted there. And you have both minds kind of almost fighting for the process, the thought process. And then when you get to the bottom, you, we, we're, you're in one of those zones where you're, you're, this belief is so sacred to you that uh, you're, you're really doing your thinking. You're not doing much thinking at all. You are, you're in the business at that moment of belief preservation. And so you become this brick wall to argue with, and there's nothing that can change your mind about it. And so th- that was like the, th- that's like the, the, the way you can use this axis for thinking. You also can use it for, I think this goes along. I think people who are, when, you're, when you are at the bottom in your thinking, I think you're also likely to be at the bottom in a whole other area, which is you're going to be morally hypocritical. You're going you're gonna to get into this kind of tribal zone where there's good, the good people with the good ideas and the bad people with the bad ideas. And you're going to have a different moral standards for your people and their people. While at the top of the ladder, you're not going to think that way, right? You're going to be very consistent. You're going to stay true to your principles no matter who's the, the subject. And, and likewise, I think you can have a third way that this ladder can apply, which is at the top, if you're a movement and, and that movement is kind of a high-rung movement, they're going to try to get what they want via persuasion. Again, they care about the truth. They believe they have the truth on their side. And they're going to try to play by the kind of, in the U.S., they would try to play by the liberal rules and use persuasion. But as you go down this ladder, you find that, that, that again, they're not really in the business of truth, even though they think they are. Um, which means they're not really good at debating or arguing. They're not morally consistent. They're very easy to pick apart in debate. So instead of persuasion, which they're not very good at, they'll use coercion. So I started to realize that like both individuals and groups, I saw, you know, you hit, they're, they're doing all three of these things usually together. So they're, they're, they're doing low-rung thinking. They're full of confirmation bias and, and uh, no way, no way they would ever say, okay, you know what? Good point. I think I'm wrong about this. They're also totally morally hypocritical, and they're all about the, the, the you know, coercion, pers- you know, co- coercion and uh, you know, authoritarianism to get what they want. And so I call, you know, if you combine those, that's low-rung politics versus high-rung politics. And so, again, I think that at the top of the ladder, it spans the horizontal spectrum. I think you're going to have radical leftists all the way to hardline conservatives who, you know, again, maybe not as many because being really hardline in something is often going to correlate with being kind of down on the, the low rungs, but not always. There, again, there's, there's some of the, you know, really thoughtful and nuanced Marxists and, 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 and far-right conservatives. I have friends that are both of these things, and they're great to talk to, and they, they're, they're fun to talk to, and they're fun to argue with. And they actually will say, okay, good point, you know, I need to think about that again. But if you go down to the low rungs, again, it spans the political spectrum, and now you have a totally different game being played. You have, um, and these are the people, of course, who, who, who uh, the Fox News, MSNBC, um, you know, reality show appeals to, because it's going to confirm the worldview down there, which is that there's good guys and there's bad guys on good team and the bad team with the good ideas and the bad ideas. And by the way, at the, you know, at the top, maybe your opponents are wrong, but as you move down, they become, you know, impossibly stupid. And at the very bottom, they're evil. They're, 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 these, are, these are the bad, evil people. And they're the only reason that this country isn't, you know, this utopia is because of the bad, evil people. And that's not how grown-ups 
think in other areas. Mm. And that got me back to your study here because it's like, this is, it's a very, it's a, I call it political Disney world at the bottom because it's like these simple narratives of good versus evil. Why are a bunch of grownups down there? What are we doing? Like, and if you go to other areas of thought, you don't see grownups acting this way, acting super tribal, acting like they're in middle school. And, and, and then when I look at something like your study, I see, well, because literally politics is one of those topics that completely makes us go crazy. It fills our mind with this primitive fog and we, this, this other part of our brain takes over. And that part of our brain is not going to be very grown up. And we're not going to be our best selves there. And, um, and the, the environmental change we talked about with these 24-hour news networks, they, they, it completely stokes that. It, it, it's like a magnet that pulls, that's pulling the country downwards on this ladder. Mm. Yeah, I think that the, the titles you've put on, on the rungs of this ladder are also instructive. So uh, the, the top, it's thinking like a scientist. Then one, one rung down is thinking like a sports fan. Then thinking like an attorney. And then thinking like a zealot, which is the, the bottom of the ladder. And there's another structure you introduce here, the, the concept of an idea lab versus an echo chamber. Maybe you can flesh that out. So basically, it's the same concept applied to groups. So it, it, what, I, what I just talked about is individuals, right? So when I say scientist, I don't mean career scientists. A lot of career scientists are very attached to their ideas and very un, unwilling to change their mind or very, you know, politically tribal or whatever. I mean, thinking, you know, the way Carl Sagan says that science is a way of thinking more than like a any kind of body of knowledge. It's a way of thinking. So that it's, right. it's, it's, you're, you're, you're thinking like a scientist. And then as I call it sports fan, people get confused why sports fan is higher than attorney. But when I say sports fan, I, I use that because I'm thinking that sports fans, you know, they care about the integrity of the game, even though they're rooting for their team to win. So, you know, if I'm, you know, I, I, you know nothing could have convinced me basically that Tom Brady, you know, because I'm a Patriots fan, that Tom Brady Deflated yeah, those footballs. Yeah. I, I, my confirmation bias was so like just hilariously in the picture there, you know. Mm-hmm. I and and I'm lo- seeking out articles that confirm that, and I'm already scoffing at a headline that doesn't before I even open the article. And yet, if someone said to me, "Okay, but here, look, if you press this button, we're going to have a corrupt ref rig that rig the game, the next game in favor of the Patriots," I would definitely not press that. I don't think any sports or very few sports fans would. So there's this there's this kind of you have a you have a a respect for the process deep down that is bigger than anything, but you get very lost in this confirmation bias and you have to, you know, and, and, and so there's a lot of confirmation bias there, but the, the kind of the, the other side has the edge. The attorney, the reason I use that is as the third rung out of four is, so it's still a conflict, right? The second and third rungs is when both of these minds are kind of competing. The attorney rung is when you've got the, where the primitive mind has the edge. And so now the difference between the sports fan is, you know, the sports fan might say that, you know, always see the call going there on their side. But when they see the replay and it's undeniable, they say, okay, I was wrong. The attorneys, their job is to stay on the side of their client and Mm. to continue to, to, you know, you you don't have an attorney who switches their side because the prosecutor made a good point. So in, in a real courtroom, you've got two attorneys. And so each attorney knows that they're one side of a truth finding machine and that their job is to represent one side as well as possible because they know the other attorneys they're doing the same and the clash of the two allows the jury to see the truth so this you know this isn't even this isn't a criticism of real world attorneys who are doing this on purpose because it's part of a bigger system when you're thinking like an attorney you only have one side in your head and so you're just building a case that's going to lead right to where you want to and you're going to never change your mind you know you'll 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 seem like you have all this evidence and all these ways of thinking but you won't change your mind and then at the very bottom rung, you're a zealot. And what I mean by that is just that 
there's nothing forget change forget arguing you you don't even think you think anyone who would argue this is an awful person it's so obvious that you're correct like the sky is blue you don't why would you need to argue that the sky is blue um and so you're just completely you know in a delusional zone down there and of course conviction ironically you know because the people at the top here end up with way more knowledge but the people at the bottom have the most conviction they have pure conviction they're 100% sure they're correct so anyway, then I, th- I said, okay, but this is about individuals. What, why do we act this way? Again, just asking, why would we ever be down on these low rungs? It makes no sense. And a big part of it is that we are social creatures. And, and tribes a long time ago, you know, our, we were, our, our, you know, our well-being and our survival totally dependent on being kind of successfully integrated with a larger group. And so what I find is that you can kind of, boil group intellectual culture down into two piles. And one is kind of playing by high-rung thinking rules. And the other is playing by the low-rung thinking rules. So we, ha- we know the term echo chamber. But I said, what's the opposite of an echo chamber? It's an idea lab, right? It's an idea lab where the culture of the group is to not treat ideas as sacred and that every idea can be completely obliterated, but people should be respected. So people don't, they don't take it personally when someone disagrees with their idea, and they also don't throw ad hominem attacks. Or if they do, the group calls them out on it, because that's not cool here. And likewise, I said, you know, conviction is, you know, there's an appropriate level of humility for a high-rung thinker. Well, in the group, where that's the culture in an idea lab, humility is cool. Like, it's cool to say, I don't know. And it's not cool to, to express unearned conviction. You look like an idiot. And arguing is great. You know, arguing is fun in an idea lab. Now, when you go, because, because, and so what happens is that that's kind of this culture that is like a magnet pulling everyone in it upwards on the ladder. It is actually, um, it's good for us. It makes us more robust, tougher thinkers, and it helps us stay up on the high rungs as individuals. And it has the, the emergent property of kind of group intelligence. Our brains can link together like a larger, like neurons in a larger brain, because we're all saying what we think and we're, you know, searching out for falsehoods together and we're updating, the whole group can update. Now, when you go down to the echo chamber, which is the other kind of group culture, that is basically when a bunch of people, the primitive minds in a bunch of people's heads team up together to collaboratively protect a certain set of sacred ideas, the way that an individual low-rung thinker would do that in their own head. Now a group's working on it together. And so they'll do that by imposing strict social penalties on anyone who expresses doubt in the sacred ideas or, or even worse, expresses compelling dissent. And conviction down there is super cool, as long as it's conviction on the right side. It's talking about how, you know, if you're in one of these environments, and we all have been there, you'll notice that one of the main activities is just talking about how right and good we are and how wrong and bad the people who disagree with us are. That'll just take up a whole dinner. A whole mm-hmm. three-hour dinner will just be that. Mm-hmm. And that's a bunch of people basically in a ritual together doing this ancient thing where they are their, their entire... You know, the entire, you know, all the friendship here is based on we are all the good people who have this good idea. And so all of this social behavior happens because there's so much social incentive now not to, not to be independent thinking, but to, to conform. And arguing, you know, in an idea lab, arguing is, is thought of as fun. It's a, it's a way to play. It's a way to get smarter. Down in an echo chamber, arguing is a fight. If you disagree with someone, you're an asshole, right? You know, it's, the, the, uh, being an asshole and, be, and disagreeing are two separate axes in the idea lab. You can be an asshole who agrees with me or an asshole who disagrees or a good person who agrees or a good person who disagrees. Down below, it's you're either a good person who agrees or you're an asshole who disagrees. Mm-hmm. And so we, and I, again, I'm saying, why do we do this, right? Like, 
this is it's it's so much worse to be in an echo chamber. Like it's less fun, it's less interesting. We all end up less intelligent. It pulls our, you know, it's it's like pheromones. You know, when once you're around that environment, there is this urge to agree and to conform. It becomes kind of this primitive instinct kicks in that kept us alive in the tribes a long time ago. It becomes you kind of want to please the group, and we I, I've felt this before, and I have to catch myself and say, why I'm I'm not proud of how I'm being right now. And I think it's partially because if the emergent property of the idea lab is really strong intelligence, the emergent property of the echo chamber is, if you really scale it up, is just power, is just a big, scary giant. I call it a golem. It's like a big, Hmm. dumb, you know, tramp monster that can tramp through a society, that can overthrow a dictator, you know, or that can, you know, that can defeat another country. I mean, or back in the old days, that can just be the meaner, badder tribe, the one that survives and kills the other. And so we're actually, we're in kind of like golem mode when we're acting like this. We're in this mode where, you know, we're doing this thing that is an, a very important ancient survival thing that makes no sense in 2023. Why are we wasting our time doing this in 2023? Yeah, well, all of this is um, very interesting and quite consequential. I, I think it gets confusing. Uh, so let's just take the schema as, as given. I, I, I really like it. and. Um, Needless to say, I try to think like a scientist and and live in, in an ideal lab as much as I can. But it's interesting to see what happens and, and how you're perceived when endeavoring to think like a scientist and maintain the norms of an ideal lab. You have to react to the products and, and misbehavior of zealots and attorneys, and sports fans. It's not obvious how to do that. I mean, so there's a few things here that are, I think, confusing to almost everyone. One is, you know, when you're thinking like a scientist in an idea lab, there's this perpetual tension between accepting authority and scientific consensus and being skeptical of authority and consensus at, you know, every step along the way, right? So in it's, you know, it's often said that in science, we don't respect scientific authority, but that's not quite true. I mean, as a labor-saving and time-saving and, and opportunity-cost-sparing device, we accept scientific authority all the time, but at the slightest sign of error, we become alert to the brute fact that the truth of any proposition doesn't even slightly depend on the on the authority or the, the reputation or the, you know, the career accolades of the person making that proposition, right? So we, everyone knows that the most celebrated scientist of his or her age can be wrong in their very next utterance. And so, you know, if, when your bullshit detector goes off, it goes off in the presence of anyone as a scientist. But short of that, it's only reasonable to assume that the best chemists know, you know more about chemistry than anyone else most of the time, and so it is with every other scientific discipline. So we, we do you can revert to asking our authorities what they think, and then we're continually trying to push into areas where we actually, where, where no one is an authority, right? And then, and then when anomalies are found, we, we try to clean up the mess as we go. But we're living in an environment now where there's a there's an, and this is largely what, what I would say Trump and COVID did to our 
collective minds in the, over the last few years, something like what, you know, what I've referred to as a, a new religion of contrarianism, right, where the difference between expertise and, and just pure amateurish speculation has been, to a large degree, nullified. And the institutions that used to safeguard our you know, m- most reliable streams of uh, information and you know, knowledge gathering and, and, and knowledge, knowledge gathering and knowledge dissemination are now derided almost universally, right? So that you know, virtually no one respects the media, you know, really, or not without severe caveats. Uh, and that disrespect has now spread to you know any governmental organization that would give us information about more or less anything of consequence. It spread to science, you know, both universities and academic journals. There's just been a a raising of the establishment on both the le- the left and the right, probably you know to a greater degree on the right, and it's um, it's introduced this this expectation that everything it, all, that basically all claims to knowledge are on all fours with all others. Everything has to be entertained with the same open mindedness or doubt, right? I mean, it just it's like there's just no there are no standards anymore, and. So, you know, the kinds of, I mean, just to speak personally, I mean, the kinds of things that people want me to debate on this podcast, uh, you know, I view as fairly incredible, you know, the range of things that people think should be given a, a the most patient hearing at this point. And of course, whenever you find evidence of a real conspiracy theory or, you know, a real moment of deception on the part of a major institution, it seems to justify this very picture of just the nullification of all distinctions, right? Like, okay, here we got this risible editorial published by, you know, the most esteemed scientific journal, you know, something like Science or Nature, where they just go all in on woke identitarian nonsense. And that is just the smoking gun of of the decade, right? Like, okay, now scientists can't be believed about anything. You know, it's, um, I'm wondering how you or just approaching this, what seems to me to be a kind of epistemological and social emergency, where we're getting where the the tools to manufacture misinformation and public doubt uh, have never been more available, and and they're getting stronger by the hour. Again, we've, we you know we're having this conversation a couple of weeks after the unveiling of ChatGPT, and and no sooner did that happen, we now have uh, GPT four. This is, uh, while it may one day help us detect and correct misinformation, it, in the meantime, it's going to proliferate it to an extraordinary degree. How do you think we should personally and collectively try to navigate this moment? Well, I mean, I, I think that this is, this is so the, 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 it's, the erosion is of trust, right? Is, is, and I mean, what is trust? We can't, you know, everything that you believe is, comes from one of two in one of two ways. There's direct knowledge of something you observed, or in your case, that study, you actually were one of the authors. I talk about your study too, but I wasn't one of the authors. I trust you and the other people who did it. And so I basically photocopy what you actually learned firsthand into my brain. That's, you know, indirect knowledge. So most of the knowledge in all of our brains is going to be indirect knowledge. This is one of the magical things about humans, right? This is why we can build civilizations and other animal species can't, because we have this incredible ability through language and writing to uh, photocopy the knowledge of others, um, you know, that, that maybe spans back centuries 
um, and then build upon it. And trust is because, there, but there's a lot of knowledge coming at us, right? I mean, there's we see there's there's every headline, every study, every everything someone says is a potential indirect knowledge. And the skill that we have to build is who to trust. And when you trust the right people, you know, when you trust people that are that are saying the truth, again, you 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 have this great knowledge corner cutting tool. But when you trust the wrong people, you it's, it's worse than not not learning anything because now you're actually you're inviting delusion into your head and you're believing you're you're coming to believe things that are not true and so it's like very important skill is trust and and for a society one of the the best most efficient way a society can be is that there are these institutions that are known to be trustworthy widely known to be trustworthy as far as their their integrity and their ability to be accurate and so then the public can over, you know, maybe a few decades build up a cautious and then eventually kind of an automatic trust in knowledge-making institutions. And that's this incredible tool for society. It's like the best society, in, you know, the, the best thing that, that could ever happen for a society. And what you're talking about, this kind of emergency or this crisis, is a rapid deterioration of public trust in knowledge-making institutions from academia to media to to science. And I think there's, that's happening from, in, for, uh, and it's kind of, that trust is being burnt from two different directions. So one is kind of the, the, what's been going on in the right wing for 20 years, which is, you know, Rush Limbaugh had some quote that he said, the four corners of deception in our society are, you know, academia, media, science, and I forget the fourth. And so that, that's literally like one of the great preachers of the, this giant portion of the country saying, no, again and again and again, whatever you do, don't be a chump who trusts these knowledge-making institutions. And so, of course, you know, tr Trump is the latest example, but like that, that's been a long-standing thing on the, on the right. And the fact about it is, it, is it's, both, it's both an unfounded conspiracy theory that, um, you know, has the, convenient, has the convenient implication that who, you sh who should you trust? Me, Rush Limbaugh, me, Donald Trump, right? On the other hand, it's not entirely unfounded if you're on the right in that the media and academia and, and you know, these things have been biased against the right. They are not totally perfectly neutral actors. And you know, if you think about how tribalism works, if you are feeling like these are my people and these institutions hate my people and they they're, they're against me. Think about that, how that feels. You, you, you're not going to trust them. You, 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 you know. And so then you have this other guy who says, you know, Rush Limbaugh, who says, I'm on your side, right? I don't like those people either. Trust me, they are not to be trusted. So it, it's both, um, it's, it's, again, it's mostly, I think, for most of time, an unfounded conspiracy theory, but unfounded asterisk. There was maybe a little bit of reason for it. Now, that's one storyline. The other storyline is, over the last decade especially, but even more so over the last like three, two, three years, you've had, and so whatever, there was a thread of maybe some bias against the right and maybe not totally accurate when it comes to political stories or science that is politically charged, you know, a little bit of that has, has just ramped up. So the asterisk on unfounded has gotten a whole lot bigger mm. as academia. I mean, there's all these, you know, academia, so if, if I'm the king of a new country and I have to set up ac academic institutions, what do I definitely want? I want them to be idea labs, right? Idea labs is when 
groups of people become smarter than any individual. That's when, they, that's when the emergent property is knowledge and intelligence. So for Idealabs, sure, I'd, I'd like it to be a bunch of people who disagree. And, and but you, I'm not going to go and, and, and enforce that and say you have to hire this many people from this side, this many people from that side. I'm just going to say, uh, there, you know, there will naturally be enough people on different sides of every issue and different sides of every topic that have, happen to have an interest in coming to, you know, the academy. What, I, what must happen is it has to be a place that is a totally fun and great and interesting place to express dissent and to, and, and the biggest night, you know, enemy of the antithesis of idea lab culture at a university is orthodoxy, right? And, and is orthodoxy, and, and when it's scary to, to disagree with the orthodoxy, that's another word for echo chamber culture. So this, again, the polar opposite culture. And if you, one, one way you can look at this is, you know, academia has always been left-leaning, right? It's just inherently is one of those things that's left-leaning. But the numbers of, you know, per, the, the ratio of, um, you know, right to left or left to right, you know, professors or administrators based on campaign contributions and registrations and all things like that used to be like four to one, you know, two to one to four to one. So, but that's, you know, if you think about that pie, that's still a pretty big red slice of the pie. It's about a quarter of the, a quarter of the pie. And that's enough for what, you know, John Haidt calls institutional disconfirmation. It means that any theory that comes out, even the ones that are the blue ones that are popular, there's going to be immediately a ton of people trying to, trying to break those theories and prove why they're wrong, which is how the institution as a whole produces knowledge and how it becomes a, a smart place. And, and also a trustworthy place, a place where, where ideas that do make it out are, are going to have passed through a gauntlet of criticism and attack. And so that number today has gone from like, you know, again, four to one in the humanities up to something like 17 to one across the mm-hmm. country. It's, 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 if you go to anthropology, you know, it's 40 to one. If you go to the <laughs> interdisciplinary studies, it's infinity to one in most schools where there's interdisciplinary, meaning things like gender studies, critical mm-hmm. race theory, you know, these, there's zero people who contributed to a Republican campaign there. So it's not, again, it, this is only one kind of intellectual diversity, but it says something. And, and I don't think it's that that, that, that right-wing people have gotten less interested, I think that there has been a, it's become a completely untenable place for a thoughtful right-winger to go do their work. And there's lots of evidence for that. So back to Rush Limbaugh here saying stuff like, you know, academia is one of the four corners of deception. It does not help when academia then becomes a complete echo chamber, com- converts from an idea lab or something close to it to a total echo chamber of, of orthodoxy, where even tenured professors now can get fired for saying the wrong thing, which of course, what's the purpose of tenure? It was literally to prevent this so that any mm. intellectual fads or mobs that come along, you know, it's not going to mess with academic freedom. Not anymore. Tenured professors are on the hook if they, if they offend the, the, the current sensibilities of the, of the left. So, so that's one example. Of course, media, journalistic integrity. I mean, we talked about the old days. It's not that, it's not that, there's, there was it, the, the big broadcast news stations were perfect, or the New York Times used to be perfect. But there was, there was a serious focus on academic, uh, on, on journalistic integrity. And there was, it was a serious business for grownups. And as this has turned from news to the real politicians of Washington, D.C., or, you know, just turned into entertainment, journalist integrity in so many different ways has gone out the window. You have misleading headlines, you have straw men, you have, you know, just, you know, just fabricated things, you, you know. You have, uh, you know, James Bennett at the New York Times getting f- fired as the head of op-eds for having the nerve to publish an op-ed by Tom Cotton that 60% of the country at the time agreed with. Hmm. You're firing the op-ed writer, the op-ed editor 
for 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 making the op-eds any form of idea lab because the, the the lesson to all op-ed writers after James Ed got fi- or all op-ed editors was after James Ed James Bennett got fired is this is an echo chamber now and and you better play by these rules so again so this is why it's so so I don't know how to fix the first problem because I, I think that I think that there are people who are but I um have been around I've been surrounded by people on the left I have a much better sense of what's going on there mm. I think that so, that people who are who are much more enmeshed in red culture, I think should be taking on that issue, you know, uh, and, and trying to work on um, making it cooler on the right to actually trust, you know, institutions that are deserving of trust. But at least I can see a solution on the other side, which is, which is you know, how does this happen, right? How, how do you end up with in these major institutions going south? It doesn't happen all at once. It happens in a series of little, if you take a microscope and look at it up close, you know, if you look at what, you know, the New York Times from 1960 or 70 to today, or even from 2010 to today, Mm. the changes are not, they don't happen all at once. It's not some, you know, new ruler comes in and and, and everything's different. It's a series of what I call moments of truth. So there's this moment when, again, just to you go back to this, story of James Bennett. So he is the head of op-eds, and this is right after George Floyd. Things are really, really tense. And Tom Cotton basically says, look, peaceful protests are okay, and rioters, not okay, and they, we need to bring in the troops. In the insur- you know, citing the insur- Insurrection Act, which was invoked for the LA riots and other times. And that's a very controversial view. About half the country, even more than half the country, agreed with it. But New York Times readers did not, right? This was, this was a, the worst idea in the world to many New York Times readers. And so there's an uproar. And not about, again, the good kind of uproar, the idea lab kind of uproar is saying, Tom Cotton's wrong, and here's 100 reasons why. Here's a, my op-ed on it, right? That's great. That enhances the discussion. The, the, instead, the kind of uproar was, not only should the New York Times not have published this, James Bennett needs to be fired for publishing it. So James Bennett writes a response, and he says, Listen, I don't agree with the op-ed, but if, I, if we only are publishing things that people like me and probably you agree with, then this isn't a real newspaper. And by the way, this guy is a senator with a lot of real-world power. We need to know what he thinks. And a lot of the country agrees with this. We need to know what he thinks so we can refute it. Again, very grown-up thing, grown-up response from a grown-up person at a grown-up newspaper. What happens? The Twitter uproar gets rolling, criticism from all angles, criticism within the company, and... The moment of truth. Do, 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 does the, do the leadership of the Times stand up for the core values of the Times, stand up for basic liberal values, and stand up for the kind of values that make the New York Times somewhere that can be trusted? Or do they cede to the mob? And they ceded to the mob. They, the next day, there's a huge apology on the top of the article saying, we never should have published this. James Bennett is fired. The next op-ed editor comes in, and first thing she says is, if anything, for the slightest thing makes you uncomfortable, I want to know immediately to the staff. So that is, I could, I could tell a hundred stories like that. And I basically did in my book, but basically it's like, there's, if you look at, if, if you look at what's the changes under a microscope and what you see is these little moments of truth. When you realize that the mob didn't fire James Bennett, the mob didn't hurt New York Times credibility. It was the actual leadership. It was James Bennett's boss and others at the company basically failing in that moment. And by the way, those leaders almost always disagree with the mob if you actually get them alone. Mm. It's that moment when they fail that they, 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 they give away, they, they basically sell their soul to the devil in that moment and in, in order to get off the hook for this short-term thing. 
And those moments together have, I think if you look at this crisis of trust and knowledge, I think a huge part of it boils down to hundreds of these little tiny moments. And so I see the crisis of trust stemming from a crisis of courage and, and kind of an epidemic of cowardice because it's so much easier in that moment to do the easy thing. And so, yeah, so th- th- that to me is something I can point at that I say we can do better. And I don't know if that's going to turn. And look, trust is, takes a long time to build up and it's easy to shatter. So I think it's going to, this is a, this could be decades of, of damage of, to trust before it's back. But it, the least we can do is try to push these institutions and the leadership there to start acting like trustworthy people. Act trustworthy and then the trust can start to build back. But it's so frustrating watching these Rush Limbaugh, Donald Trump narratives gain so much credence. This is the best thing you can do to Donald Trump. For Donald Trump, for, you know, Sean Hannity, this is the best gift you can give them is the institutions they're trying to convince you never trust the science, never trust academia or the media, is actually those institutions giving you reason to feel that way. Hmm. How much do you think is attributable to social media? I mean, and take this narrow example of James Bennett being fired. I mean, this was a capitulation to the mob, but wasn't the mob by definition, what was happening on Twitter? Yeah, I think social media is, uh, so, I mean, it used to be, I mean, think about 15, 20 years ago, even, even like 10 years ago, there, there would be people, you know, in early internet screaming in the comment sections about this, this op-ed shouldn't have been published, but you could barely hear them, these faint screams, right? You know, it's irrelevant. Something like Twitter is a totally different game because, so, so before, if people are screaming in the comment sections, they have no power. And the head, the, the leaders at the, the New York Times have all the power. And so something like what, what, uh, Twitter, it changes that equation because, because it's this, it's instead of the, the one person screaming in the comment section, well, now they can scream it on Twitter and a bigger account can retweet them. And then a bigger account can retweet them. And there's actually this kind of evolution thing that goes on where a thousand accounts will tweet about why James Bennett needs to be fired. And the snappiest, best worded, you know, clever, most cleverly straw man, whatever idea, uh, uh, tweet is the one that starts to go viral. And it gets tweeted from bigger and bigger accounts. So that person, you know, that, that wacky person screaming in the comment section now can, has a megaphone. And what you find is, you know, you have these these surveys of journalists and they, they you know, they acknowledge that a lot, they, they, that they're very affected with what goes on on Twitter. They don't want to be in trouble, right? And, and it, so, it's, so it, it swings the power balance in this kind of intense way. I talk about like, you know, the, so why, you know, why do you care if the mob is against you on Twitter, right? They're not going to, they can't physically hurt you or in, in almost no cases they can. But the thing is, we're a very social species. So a mob that in another country, they might go and be lynching people, right? And that's very, very, very scary. But our, again, our stupid brains, the same brains that think Skittles are healthy, right, are, are the same brain that thinks that social execution and reputational damage is basically as scary as, any, as, as, as physical damage. You know, our ancient brain isn't that good at distinguishing them because back in the day, being ostracized probably meant death. And, and so, so we have this fear, right, of, of this. And so what a mob can do is they can, in the U.S., it's a soft cudgel, right? They, they can't actually execute you, but they can destroy your reputation. And one of the things they can, and, and so I, like, how does this work? Well, you can, first of all, you can manufacture a villain. You can take someone like James Bennett or one of a hundred other people, 
and you can you can basically find out of context things. You can paint a story that's not really fair. You can, you know, James Damore suddenly wrote the anti-diversity screed, which is not what he wrote, right? But that's that becomes this the straw man that mm. gets that goes viral. So first, there's kind of a manufacture the villain, make 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 this person more of a villain. Then. Uh, destroy the villain. So someone, again, one person sh- fires a paintball gun with a smear at the villain and it's a little dot on his arm. And then bigger account starts doing it. And then suddenly you've got a million people all at once firing this industrial sized paintball cannon at this person. And, and they're covered in paint, right? Smear paint. And you've, you've talked about this. You talk about how it's very, you know, it puts the, the, the smeared person in a really bad situation because you are, you're in a kind of a lose-lose, right? You can not say anything, and then people will start to believe the smear. Or you can defend yourself, and you seem thin-skinned, and almost it almost makes you seem guiltier mm. in some way. So that's a bad situation. But then it goes further. And then there's this radioactive thing where it's, you know, f- f- first of all, the smear, by the way, is, 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 is indelible ink. Because Google search results, for most people who aren't famous, forever, you're going to be, when you search your name, that's the first thing that's going to come up is the 20 media articles that were written about you that week when you were getting smeared. Yeah. Um, you know, little, little article in HuffPost and Business Insider and just these, you know, these little crap articles will end up being the, what's, what comes up forever. So it's, this smear is etched onto you forever. And then they make you radioactive where anyone who defends you is now going to get smeared. Anyone who, you know, goes on your podcast, anyone who hires you. Um, so James Bennett, by the way, you know, what, you know they, otherwise you'd say, well, why didn't the Washington Post just hire him? Because they don't want the same thing to happen to them. So, they, so he's radioactive now. And this is, crazy. This is brand new, right? This didn't used to be like this. This is a new thing, and it makes it genuinely scary for social species like ours to, to actually um, to be on the wrong side of the mob. That said, the people that have stood up to the mob, it, it, the sky doesn't actually fall. It feels like it's going to in a way that is usually not what actually happens. But it's that fear. It's that fear of, of, of being widely criticized and becoming toxic that makes this, these moments of truth go the wrong way again and again. So yeah, it's, it's basically, this is ancient stuff, right? Mob dynamics and social kind of social ganging up on someone and making it, you know, once someone, this happens in middle school, once the, mm. the really cool kid deems this person to be a loser, the biggest loser ever. Well, now if you're friends with them, you're, you're part of the loser, for, you know, so, so now you have all this, you know, this primitive instinct kicks in to suck up to the, to the cool kid and, 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 and talk shit about the, the loser with them. You're seeing grown-ups act like that on this mass scale right now. Hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering if the tools are such that even with the best of intentions and being aware of the, the perverse dynamics here, they're just going to prove impossible to use, or they're, they're going to continually cough up the problem we're becoming more and more mindful of and not give us a capacity to avoid it. I mean, so like we're having this conversation now in a week where we just experienced a run on the bank at uh, Silicon Valley Bank and, and a few other regional banks are showing they're coming under pressure. Uh, and this is to some considerable degree, you know, attributed to what happened on Twitter, you know, that a bunch of very valuable business people stoked a fair amount of fear about what was happening over at uh, SVB. And it just fed on itself and, and you know, what should have been a, a perfectly recoverable situation financially for that institution, as uh, ineptly as they had marshaled their resources, it seems, they had not invested in toxic assets. There was really, there really was no real jeopardy, but this crisis of confidence spiraled out of control and you had a proper run on the bank. 
And what you're describing, and, and you know, it's happened to me on social media from both the left and the right, it's a kind of bank run on a person's reputation. It begins to feed on itself and it becomes irresistible, right? And then even you know, one's friends don't want to pay the reputational price to come to your defense because, you know, it just, there's a diffusion of responsibility and it, it seems pointless and it's just too painful. And it's, and even in, in certain cases, it just, it requires too much work to figure out what is even true in the situation because so much misinformation is being spread and articles that are entirely misleading are being published. And, and it's, so it's, I'm just worried that the tools themselves are just, I would be the first to admit that there's, there are good parts to Twitter, right? I mean, this, uh, there are actually you know, things I miss about it. It's great to follow up a couple of hundred very smart, funny people and see what they're paying attention to hour by hour. But I don't know how we avoid bank runs of every conceivable type with these tools. And I don't know how we check the spread of dangerous misinformation in the presence of a pandemic that's much worse than COVID was. Uh, and I don't know how we get our heads around scary information of, you know, let's say around, uh, uh, you know, a missile launch that uh, may or may not be real, that now we're, now we're advertising to ourselves on these tools. And it just, you know, we've got 30 minutes to decide whether everything's going to be eradicated on our side of a, you know, a nuclear standoff. And we're now in the presence of deep fakes that just can't be debunked in real time. I mean, we have just built tools where we have no time in which to thoughtfully react to information. And it's, the time course is only getting shorter and shorter. Uh, and we're, we're showing ourselves to be uh, more and more reactive in each case. So. I, yeah, I mean, I well, I mean, well, I think what you're describing is the way I like to think about society is kind of like this big giant that is going up a mountain towards a better, you know, a more perfect union, right? And there's such amazing things up that mountain. There's, there's, you know, a, you know, you bring Thomas Jefferson here to today, and he would think he's in utopia hmm. because just the, the the life expectancy and the the availability of food and the curing of so many diseases and the information and the amazing you know, mobile phones and the airplanes, whatever. He thinks he's in a magical utopia. And I think there's a, what we would consider a magical utopia up that mountain, maybe within, you know, many of our lifespans. And this giant is trudging upwards towards it. The problem is it's on a thin ridge and there's a cliff that, you know, that you can fall, if you fall off that mountain, the cliff gets steeper, higher and higher and higher. The more you go up that mountain, you know, of increasing rapid technology that can bring the most amazing things, you also have the risk gets bigger. There's that the, the cliff gets higher and more deadly to fall off of. And so again, what, what would you want to do if you were this giant? You'd say, I need to focus right now. I need to be very careful where I'm stepping and, 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 and think, you know, harken back to all of my training and I need to look ahead and stay focused and step carefully. In other words, we would want to have our wits about us right now, right? We're going, you know, all these new tools are coming out. You know, what's the, what's the wise way for us to interact with these? What should the rules be? How, how, do we, how do we cope with all of these new things that are coming and, and avoid disaster? And what you're describing is the opposite, right? This is, again, what I talked about and got me kind of working on this book in the first place is it feels like we're losing our grip. We're, we're, getting, we're, we're, we're losing our wits at this time. And, you know, when you talk about how, you know, 
we're losing trust in these knowledge institutions and how you know misinformation can spread spread really quickly and how you know someone can deep fakes and fake news about missile launch and 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 you know these kind of these bank runs on people that happen so quickly it's like we're losing our grip right it feels like there's that we had a grip in a way on kind of societal sanity at some point in, in you know 10 maybe 10 years ago 20 years ago and that grip seems to be slipping because of new technology and again it's not that the individuals have gotten less wise it's that the kind of the systems and the mechanisms by which we collectively can keep stability, keep things moving you know, steadily up that hill are deteriorating really quickly, quicker than we can do something about it. The optimistic side, the thing I could say that, that maybe, you know, that would give reason to feel like maybe, okay, but maybe we can do something is just that there's been a lot of wild wests in history. You know, this is, this is a wild mm. west, right? And um, it's, you know, it didn't, you know, so think about it. the opposite of the Wild West is longstanding institutions that have built up decades of trust and their systems and their systems of, you know, within systems and everyone knows how it works and everyone trusts the systems and everything that comes, the systems handle it, right? That's the opposite of the Wild West. The Wild West is there's a new environment, new people in a new environment and, and, and the systems aren't there yet and anything goes and there's a lot of mistakes being made, but also a lot of raw creativity happening and a lot of change. Wait, you know, it's you know, amazing time to make change. And, and so I, I also see the, the bright side, which is that the Wild West, A, can be a time of amazing creativity and change in a positive way. And that it, when you're in the Wild West era of any society, it probably feels like this is just, this is just hopeless. But actually... Uh, we have a history in a place like the U.S. We have a history of like uh, getting that grip back. You know, even, okay, even this discussion we're having, at this point, everyone you talk to would say, yeah, of course, Twitter's bad. Yeah, mobs are bad. Twitter mobs are a thing. Um, of course, Instagram is probably bad for teen brains. Right? We didn't know that five years ago, seven years mm. ago. Like, it was pretty recent that this stuff became public. So that's already a huge step forward. People, in, you know, these things can do the most damage when no one realizes they're even bad yet. The fact that it's it's kind of almost widely accepted knowledge at this point that these things should be we should be wary of these things and they can cause a lot of harm is a, is a, you can that is another another storyline that's happening, which is which is a wising up and starting to build new systems and new norms and new assumptions based on this new environment that's happening. You know, it's almost like an arms race. I don't know what happens first. Maybe the environment keeps changing and it just goes so quickly we lose our grip and. That's really bad. I mean, that's, that could be a, you know, it's hard to believe when you grow up in a, a really stable society that it could ever not be like that. But look at, you know, read about history. Read about any civilization that at their peak thought probably it would be like this forever. And yeah, th this can go, this can, we can lose our stability and it can, we can all live in a future where we're all saying, my God, the good old days. We didn't realize how good we have it. Or not. Or we look back and say, yeah, that was a chaotic period and all that new technology was coming on at once. And you know, yeah, there was a lot of crazy things that happened. It was the Wild West. Um, you know, it was the Red Scare or whatever it is. And now, now, now things are better. We figured it out more. So mm. I don't know which one it will be. How do you think about conspiracy theories and misinformation in particular and, and, and the specific actors, you know, who are far outliers in, in the degree to which they amplify this kind of stuff? Something like if you were running YouTube or Twitter, what would you do with a character like Alex Jones? Right. Do you, de well, do you, you deplatform Alex Jones? I don't think I do now because it's just, it's just, it's A, of course, the slipperiest slope possible, but B, it's so subjective. I mean, there's got to be but some. E even with the Sandy Hook stuff? I don't know. I didn't follow that close enough to know what well, I know he did bad things. Um, 
I mean, may, yeah, maybe there's. You, you some... don't know the details there. Not I mean, there, really. There's, no. so, I mean, so this is what's so bizarre about this moment. I mean, there, there are there are Sandy Hook parents who've moved, literally moved houses ten times since their kids were murdered because of what Alex Jones and his crazy audience have done to them. Right, and so it, is, it, isn't that isn't that a violation of right the First Amendment? Isn't that um, well, it's all the, it, but it's it's just it's doxing. Of, I mean, it's doxing. But what's the line between doxing and journalism? Right. I mean, well, how, the First Amendment has a lot of this covered. Right. I mean, d- d- there are speech restrictions that have been you know fleshed out in decades of, right. of tort law. And but this is not necessarily calling for violence. Well, let's just take. I, I don't have in front of me specifically what he has said, but. You know what he's done is he's shined the the light of his crazy ideas on specific people, right? You know, calling them crisis actors. Their kids never died. This is all a pretext to come get our guns. And he's he's amplified the the concerns of an echo chamber, you know, filled with in this case, you know, gun rights zealots. And gun rights is not the only variable here, but it's one of them. And he's he's just gotten a lot, a very large number of people. Uh, a disproportionate percentage of whom are, you know, fairly unstable. One has to imagine to spend time thinking about specific people and where they live and what we should all, you know, how we should all make them miserable based on what they have done. And yet, it's all this insane fiction, right? That they faked their children's murders so as to give Obama a pretext to roll back the Second Amendment. Assuming, I mean, I, I don't know what his motives are apart from me. Either he's crazy or he's just the most obscene grifter who's ever lived. But in either case, he's been given this, we, we've built the tools that never existed before. It's not like maybe he would have been a pamphleteer a hundred years ago, but now we've given him these algorithmic tools that preferentially boost insanity because we have this awful business model that just feeds on on attention. And, you know, then he was able to aim millions of fairly disordered brains at specific people and ruin their lives after all their lives had already been ruined by the worst thing that would could ever happen to really anyone, you know, having your kid having your six year old murdered at school. So in my view, and again, I've I've gotten a fair amount of pushback for not being a free speech absolutist on this point. In my view, the the free speech concerns fall to the platforms themselves. I'm not saying Jones needs to be jailed for his irrational beliefs, but if you owned a platform, if you created YouTube, and you didn't want to be associated with this kind of needless human misery and and irrationality, why why should anyone force you to stay married to Alex Jones and his crazy cult if you if you don't want to? I, I think that that if, again, if we're talking about Wild West, right? This is an example. Like we we this is new, this concern. Yeah. Like there was no YouTube, and so you know, one school of thought is what you know. Yes, just be an absolutist. You know, carry over the rules we have in wider society to this. Done, right? Okay, and I think that's a valid argument. Another argument would say no, this is different, and there should be a different you know kind of Ten Commandments here of of of, of rule violations. And I don't see anything wrong with that if it is public and consistently applied. And, and uh, so I, I think that probably, yeah, probably the best, because I think what you're describing is, yeah, it's hard to argue that, that free speech absolutism is, 
ness is definitely the right thing here. But I think that if you're gonna if you're gonna have a set of rules that you, you can very clearly say Alex Jones, because think about again, think about what the First Amendment does is there's a very specific definition of incitement or of plagiarism or things that are you know free speech violations, right? You know this, so there should be very specific you know fine print that really gets into the details of what would get someone banned from YouTube. And Alex Jones should, if, if that is done well, should either be clearly in violation or clearly not of it. But if, he, if he's in violation, and then the next month, you have someone that is reporting that, you know, black people are being gunned down in the streets after one of these video surfaces, and that there is a, there's an epidemic of white cops shooting black men in the, in, in the U.S., and that is, and, and, and then there are riots, and then there are maybe, you know, white cops getting shot. And that initial information is not true, right? And, 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 it's, and it's a total exaggeration of reality, mm. and it's a false narrative. There has to be a very good reason, per the rules, where that person doesn't get banned, and Alex Jones does. Because if you ban Alex Jones, I think there's a lot of people in June of 2020 who would have also had to get banned. And if, you, if, if, if YouTube wants to apply that consistently, great. I have no problem with that. And I think that the rules should be transparent and they should be consistent. What I think has the problem is what has consistently happened is there's a non-transparent set of rules that are maybe changing by the minute that apply very much inconsistently based on the political sensibilities of the people running the platform. And that's, again, that, that is just like, that's so not, that, that, that's Wild West stuff right there, right? Like we have to, that, that a grown-up society wouldn't be doing that. Mm. I know we're up against the last few minutes of your studio time here, so just a, a final question. How are you viewing the next um, political cycle in the U.S.? I mean, how, what, what do you think is um, likely possible with respect to 2024 and the presidential election? Do you think, uh, and, you know, let's assume Trump is uh, the candidate. Uh, I don't know how likely that seems to you, but what do you think the Democrats should do if he is? Honestly, I, I, again, taking a big step back, I think there's one, you know, one set of battles, which is what are our policies on abortion, on tax policy, on health care, on all these things, right? And that's always going on. And those are all really important, right? They mean life or death for some people. But you back up. Uh, those policies are all being argued within a, an arena. And if you back up, what you also see is that the foundation of the arena is starting to crumble and the arena itself might collapse. And so I think it is so clearly, the first priority is, is the arena's foundation intact. Then, only then, can we focus back on, okay, now what's going on? Who's winning the, the match in the middle of the arena? And so, to me, more important than any w Democrat versus Republican or any specific issues is I'm rooting for election integrity election mm -hmm. integrity and, and, and widespread belief. In, this is the ultimate, we talk about trust crisis, this is the ultimate one. And you listen to Reagan, one of his favorite things to say was, this moment here, it, the peaceful transfer of power is what makes America, America, and it's what separates America from other places, and it, it's the great tradition of it. Hillary Clinton, when she loses in 2016, same exact speech, almost word for word, right? This is, this is it's, it's like, it was almost like this is the sacred, you know, parting oath of every president. Yep. And there's a reason, right? I mean, it, it is, it is because they're talking about arena foundation now. This is, the, which transcends all the stuff in the actual arena. So, of course, for, this, for that reason, I'm rooting extremely hard for DeSantis to beat Trump, 
right, or whoever it is, because this is a this is something that you know Trump again. I I don't have any problem with Trump's policies. I don't care about them compared yeah. to the fact that he is out under the arena with his sledgehammer and he's and he's you know cre- making huge cracks in the foundation that again takes a long time to build that trust up. And so yeah, so that's that's all I honestly all I care about is I, I want who I, I'm rooting for the candidates in general on either side who are going to be kind of in line with the 200-year tradition of hmm. all of us, no matter what we disagree on, of course we care about the arena and its foundation, and that's the most important thing. That's, so if they say that, uh, good, fine, nominate that person. Uh, and again, once we have two candidates that both say that, and we're not in danger of, of someone deeply undermining one of the most, the most foundational things in the country, now I'll worry about who's actually running and what they're saying, and I don't know, I'll figure out who I'm going to vote hmm. for. So that's how I feel. And I, and I'm, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly agree with that. Although I, I now realize I, I'm unaware of whether DeSantis has ever said anything entirely clear and unequivocal about election denial or, or the validity of the 2020 election. What, has he, are you aware of him having reacted to the, not, tr- the, the well, big lie in one way or the other? I'm not aware. He might have, and I don't know. But it's, you know, we talk a lot about a lot of what I've been referring to with kind of this culture of echo chamber culture and, you know, being scared to you know defy orthodoxy. That's been mm. on the left, right, regarding social justice stuff. Yeah. The right has its own version right now, which is you've talked to get any right wing politician alone in a private, uh, you know, unmiked dinner. And they're going to say, yeah, Trump's a maniac. And of course, the election, you know, he's, he's, he's doing awful things, right? You cannot say that out loud right now, or you will be in big trouble with the with the kind of RNC, and you'll be in. And Trump himself will will like acts like a mafia boss, and he'll go and you know do everything he can to you know destroy your reputation. So that that's part of the the danger of him is he's created this kind of contagion of fear of uh, and and that, but that's very tenuous because that's it's the opposite of conservatism, right? Con, con, again, Reagan, right? The, the, a good conservative is the person who should hate this the most. They're the one who, they, what do they do? They conserve the, good, yeah. the nuts and bolts of the country. So I can see it flipping where I think it probably pains a lot of Republican politicians to this whole thing. And I think probably they're, they're waiting for the day when it becomes, you know, not career suicide to start. And I, and I think once it turns, it'll turn hard and everyone will hate Trump suddenly on the right. And it'll be, mm. you know, I, I, I think that's what'll happen. Well, that's a bank run I can uh, I could get in line for. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tim, great to get you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, good luck with the book. All right. Thank you, Sam. <laughs>